119 in, and we'll sing stanzas 1, 2, and 4. Your word sheds light upon my path. Standing when the music begins. Our sermon text this morning is going to come from the book of 1 Samuel. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel. We'll be considering several verses there in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, looking at verses 12 through 24 of chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Uh, this is God's holy and inspired word. Let's give our full attention to it now. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with the meat, while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. 
So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the peoples. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, we do trust that he would bless it to us this morning. Well, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the passage that's before us this morning is one that shows great darkness in the time of Israel's history. There is great spiritual darkness in the time of Israel's history. As we read, you could feel the weight of the passage. The things of God were being treated with contempt, the text tells us. And the people of God, as a result, were suffering. Their communion with God was being interrupted by the ways in which the priests were treating the offerings with contempt. It wasn't outside opposition that we often see in the the history of Israel. It wasn't the, the nations, the pagan nations that were coming against them, the unrighteousness of the land that they were coming into, but rather the darkness was within their own gates. It was within their own midst, and it was even within the very tabernacle. It was within the very sacrificial system that God had set up. The priests were treating the offering with contempt. Those who had been set apart to shepherd the people who were responsible for leading worship were not doing what they had been set apart to do. The darkness is front and center. We see it. Evidently, the things that are happening at Shiloh are an abomination to the Lord. However, it's important that we don't miss the point of the passage. The point of the passage that we see is that though the priests were treating the offerings with contempt, the Lord shines in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness as we saw it in the boy Samuel. As we're reading and we see what is the, the spiritual decline that Israel had come into, and then all of a sudden Samuel tell, or the, the author tells us, and the boy Samuel was ministering before the Lord. So you see this light penetrating the darkness, and yes, as you know, the darkness is not able to overcome. The leaders of the people were filled with corruption and deceit and concern for their own selfish gain. Yet, the Lord provides. The Lord provides a faithful priest, restores the sacrificial system, restores right worship. And by seeing the light shine in the darkness in this passage, we're seeing what the author intended. 
We're seeing this important, very important contrast that the author sets up between the sons of Eli, the priests, and the boy Samuel. And you and I, we understand the effectiveness of contrast, do we not? We often set one thing up against another in order to make a point or to showcase a particular aspect of the point that we're making. We contrast things like light and darkness, health and sickness, strong and weak. And we do this because it's an effective way of making our point. And that's what's happening this morning before us. We want to catch the very fact that the author is setting up a contrast for us. We're seeing the light contrasted with the darkness. And in fact, Samuel, um, as a book, can be considered a book of contrast. Oftentimes, the author is showing us, the people of God, uh, their faithfulness to the Lord in light of the unfaithfulness or the rejection of those who had turned against, the, the, their, turned against God and went their own way. So it's important to recognize that the biblical authors use contrasting to teach us things, to teach us things about ourselves, to teach us things about the God in whom we serve, to teach us things about the world in which we live. So we want to look at this text through the lens of contrast that is naturally set up for us. Eli and his sons, the wickedness that is happening there, and the Lord providing Samuel, who is the faithful priest that would provide. To set the book within its, uh, con, uh, its larger context, we need to remember the historical context in which Samuel comes. He comes towards the end of the, the period of the judges, and this period, you remember, was characterized by great spiritual decline in the nation of Israel. So oftentimes, the nation would rebel. There was these cycles of prosperity and then disobedience, and then the Lord would bring punishment, and then the people would repent, and there would be restoration. And oftentimes, the judges are raised up to bring this repentance of the nation and then restoration to God's people. But at the end of this time, though there's these cycles, they're on a constant decline. And by the end of the period of the judges, the people of Israel are, are no longer repenting. They're no longer calling for reconciliation to their God. This is the context in which we're stepping into, which, is, which makes sense as to what is happening at Shiloh. It makes sense to see that, that the nation had declined spiritually, and then you see the offerings of the Lord being treated with contempt. So Samuel is the last judge of the nation, and he's filling these three roles, prophet, priest, and judge. And the book is making this transition between the judges to the monarchy, where a king is going to be set up in the nation of Israel. And so the book is really sitting in between this time period where the people were being governed by God Himself. They had entered the promised land. They were dwelling with God who had promised to dwell among them. But what was the key here? The way in which God would dwell with His people, how would He do it? Well, the tabernacle was set up, and the Lord Himself set apart the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi, what were they tasked with doing? They were to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. They were to be the mediators. They were to be the go-between between God and His people. Their very access the people to God was in and through the sacrificial system where God was mediating grace through the types and shadows of the sacrificial system. And now you're beginning to see the point 
of the darkness, we, we begin to see that the decline had reached an all-time low. If those who had been set apart to mediate between God and man, those who were the, the go-between, were not fulfilling their role, how were the people to commune with God? How were the people to come and to offer the right sacrifices and to meet their God in the tabernacle? This is important to understand because those who had been set apart to mediate between God and man were failing. And we want to work through our passage this morning by seeing this theme. We want to pull out this theme that, that is naturally flowing from the text that in the midst of the darkness, God provides a faithful priest and ultimately a great high priest to mediate between God and His people. Though the nation had descended into dark spiritual decline, the Lord provides a faithful priest. And what was that priest to do? Restore right worship. That's the point of the passage, and we're going to see that by looking at three points. One, the worthless priests. Two, the well-deserved judgment. And three, the wonderful Savior. The worthless priests first. What is it that they deserved in judgment? And the wonderful Savior as the passage closes. So first, the wonderful priests. Our passage is situated between, one, the prayer of Hannah that starts chapter 2, and then also the Lord rejecting the house of Eli and calling Samuel to the priesthood. That's where our passage sits in a broader context of the book. And the author arranges the text in such a way to highlight the context in which Samuel is being called. Again, pointing out the fact that he is being called in the midst of of the darkness. The Lord is rejecting the wickedness of the sons of Eli, and He is raising up another in their place. So look with me there at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. This phrase is an interesting phrase, worthless men. I think it's important to bring out what the translation is really meaning here. The, the Hebrew idiom that's being translated is sons of Belial. And typically it's not helpful to bring that language in, but I think here it's specifically helpful because this phrase, sons of Belial, has great relevance in the book of Samuel, also in the larger context of Scripture. So if we remember back to chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, we remember this phrase, daughter of Belial, is used once before. And so we see sons of Belial is, being, is how the... the Sons of Eli are being characterized, and, and this phrase, sons of Belial, is to characterize someone of wickedness, one who is closely associated with the evil one. But this same phrase is used of Hannah in chapter 1. In chapter 1, you remember Hannah is in the tabernacle and she is praying, and Eli mistakes her for being drunk. And what does Hannah say? She says, do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman. But if we translate that again, what she's saying is, do not consider your maidservant a daughter of Belial. And here again, we see a great contrast between Hannah, who is not a daughter of Belial. In fact, she's offering her son, Samuel, and the contrast with Eli and his sons, who are considered sons of Belial, sons of of wickedness. Do you see the irony here that Eli, his very sons, the high priest's sons, were sons of Satan, if you will. 
The irony is that Eli mistook Hannah as a daughter of Belial while his very own sons were treating the offerings of the Lord with contempt. Hannah gave her son over to the Lord as priests, and Eli bore wicked sons who were not fulfilling their role as the priest. So the language that Eli and his sons did not know the Lord is how the text continues. It makes us think back to Exodus chapter 5. You remember what Pharaoh says when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, the Lord says, let my people go. Pharaoh responds and says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Is Pharaoh saying that he is ignorant of who God is? Is he saying that he has no recollection of the God of Israel? Well, no, because the God of Israel had been revealed in a general sense to him through the the power that God had displayed through the nation of Israel. Rather, Pharaoh is saying, I don't know the Lord because he is setting himself up over against the Lord. And that's what is being said here of the sons of Eli. They did not know the Lord in such a way that they had rejected him. They had set themselves up in the place of God, and they were saying, we want the offerings in our way. We want it to be done the way that we see fit. They're rejecting God. We need to stop and consider what's being laid before us. We need to stop and consider the the weight of the matter. What's happening here? Eli and his sons, the priests, were worthless men, the text tells us. This is no light phrase. Those who were set apart had rejected God, and they were living lives marked by sin, by rebellion, by wickedness. In other words, religion in Israel had reached an all-time low. But the people understood their need. Verse 16, the people understood that they were to bring offerings to the Lord and they were to do it in a specific way, yet the shepherds were not concerned with the way things ought to be done, but they were doing it in their own way. And this is not unlike other places in Scripture where God condemns the shepherds of His flock for mishandling their responsibility. Thinking of Isaiah 56 and Ezekiel 34, the language that's used in Ezekiel 34 is striking. In fact, the shepherds, instead of feeding the sheep, they are eating the sheep, and they are getting fat off the sheep. Notice the language here. The priests are taking the offerings, and they are eating it for themselves. In other words, they're getting fat off the sheep. They are taking what is not rightfully theirs, and they are consuming it. They are abusing and violating the sacred space that the Lord had designed for communion with His people. And it's not uncommon in our context, in in this world in particular, in American Christianity, to see several pastors getting fat off their sheep and taking what is not rightfully theirs and treating the offerings of the Lord with contempt. So we see the parallels between our day and what is happening in the nation of Israel. And you may be thinking, but what is so bad about Hophni and Phinehas taking the first portion of the offering? Had God told them how to conduct these offerings specifically? Well, well, yes, in Leviticus chapter 7, you remember God commands offerings to be done in a specific way. In this chapter, we read that the first portion would be the fat. 
That's often the portion that, that you and I will cut off of our meat because it's not very tasty, but in the offering and the sacrificial system, the fat was the choicest portion of the meat. That was supposed to be burnt first, and that would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then the priest would receive the breast and the thigh. So it's not as if the priests weren't being provided for. God had set up a way for them to receive from the offering. But you notice that that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted it their own way. They wanted the choicest portion of the offering, and they were, they were willing to take it and take it by force. The priests were taking all that they wanted for themselves and they were rejecting the way that the Lord commanded things to be done. So look with me at verse 16. I, I, know, I, I mentioned it, but I think it's important to see. In verse 16, And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first. You see that the people understood that the Lord was to receive the fat to be burned first. And then take as much as you wish. The people are saying, Just offer the portion to the Lord and then take as much as you wish. But again, the priests weren't willing. The wicked priests were eating the Lord's portion of the offering. What, what do you think it was that was driving the motives of the priests? Was it their lust for power or for authority? Maybe it was their greed, their selfish ambition, their pride. They desired to place themselves above God and above others. Were they enticed to sin by their deep-rooted hunger and thirst for evil? People of God, do you see yourselves in the sins of the priests? Can you think of times where you have been motivated by selfish desire, selfish ambition, by greed and pride and lust, and you are willing to set yourself up over against God and His Word, or you're willing to set yourself up over against your neighbor, that you are even willing to take what doesn't belong to you? That you look at things that are enticing and you are willing to go and to grab them though they are not rightfully yours? So it's easy to read of the wickedness of the priest and say, how could they do such a thing? But I think what is happening here is that the sins of the priests is exposing our own sin. It's exposing our desire for selfish gain. It's exposing our often want to set ourselves up over against another. The sins of the priest exposes our sin, and as our heart is laid bare before the Lord, we quickly find that under God's law, we are condemned as guilty because we have broken His law. The sons of Eli rejected the Lord, and the hardness of their apostasy made it impossible for them to repent. However, though we can see our own sin in the wickedness of the priest, let's remember the point of the passage. As you reflect on the ways that you have sinned against the Lord, you remember that God provides. The light shines in the darkness. The Lord provides a faithful priest. But first, let's look at the well-deserved judgment that these priests did rightfully deserve. The well-deserved judgment. We're given more details in verse 22 that the priests were even laying with the women at the entrance of the tabernacle. These women that had been set apart for service to the Lord were being defiled by the wickedness of the priest. So you see, as the text continues, the sin of the priest just keeps piling upon itself. 
Things are getting worse for these priests. The wickedness has heightened. And as the high priest, Eli, should have brought judgment on his sons immediately, yet he offers a half-hearted rebuke. He does not remove them from office, yet he says, how do you do such a thing? It is not good for you to do such a thing, yet he should have brought judgment. And the Lord would have been righteous in bringing judgment immediately. He would have been right in doing so, the ways in which the priests were treating the offerings with contempt. And ultimately, the Lord would judge the house of Eli, but not before he provides. Look with me at verse 25. This is the, really the crux, the heart of the passage. Verse 25, if someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who? Who can intercede for him? You see, even Eli recognized the problem that the priests were set apart to mediate between God and man, to ensure, to maintain the fellowship that God had with his people. If the priests weren't doing it, who would do it? God had created man with a promise, and that promise was to dwell with him eternally. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The people were to enjoy God in this relationship that they had with Him. But that communion and that relationship depended on this sacrificial system. You see that there is a break in the chain. One of the most important aspects of this communion was the people bringing their offerings and the priests offering for the people and their sin. If these sacrifices were not offered, the people, you see, the, the dwelling in God's presence was hindered in some way. The people are being held from communion. And this is why God would have been right in bringing judgment on the house of Eli immediately. But as the narrative continues, we see God render judgment on the sons of Eli, but first we see the light. We see God shining in the darkness through His grace on His people. The people of Israel would not be left with these wicked priests, but God would send a worthy priest in their place, which brings us to our third and final point, the wonderful Savior. The wonderful Savior in the midst of the wickedness, in the depths of the darkness that the priests had descended into when it seemed like all hope for purification had been lost, we receive a glimmer of hope. Did you catch it when the text was read? This glimmer of hope. Wasn't it a breath of fresh air? When we read about the wickedness of the priests, and then we read in verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Samuel, the boy Samuel, is ministering before the Lord. The boy Samuel is set apart as a priest to the Lord, which is contrasted with the wickedness of Eli when Eli and his sons were busy defiling the temple, the tabernacle, excuse me, and they were taking all that they wanted from the offerings. Here we see the boy Samuel ministering before the Lord. And think of the irony here that the Lord uses a little boy set apart as a priest. The foolishness of this little boy who had been set apart. This is just like the character of our God, is it not? We think of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The priests seemed 
strong and the boy seemed weak. However, the Lord would use the boy Samuel to restore right worship. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Samuel is is being raised up to restore the right practices in the tabernacle, and thus he's restoring, in some sense, the communion between God and his people. But you're probably asking, what, what is it that Samuel did actually restore? Was this the end by which the people would commune with God? Though Samuel would restore right worship, he would still only be able to offer sacrifices. He, as the priest, would come and he would offer the blood of bulls and goats. But as we know from Hebrews 10.4, that the blood of bulls and goats did not effectually take away the sin of the people. But notice in verse 21. Look, look with me at verse 21. The, the end phrase. This is a, a, a nugget here um, that we find at the, at the end of verse 21. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. That's interesting language. Now look at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. Does this language, people of God, sound familiar? The reason that it may is because this is the language that's used of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, remember that Joseph and Mary, they go up to the temple and as they begin their journey back home, they recognize that the boy Jesus is missing. Where do they find him? They find him back in the temple, ministering before the Lord and before the others. And the section ends by Luke telling us that Jesus increased in stature and in favor with God and with man. Notice that Luke is not creating this language, but he is drawing on prior revelation to show that Samuel, as the faithful priest, was pointing forward to a greater high priest. The one high priest that would offer himself as the unblemished lamb for us. Who would take upon himself the sins of his people and go to the cross and bear the weight of God's wrath. That's what Samuel is pointing forward to. In this time of religious decline in Israel, God provides an upright priest in Samuel. But ultimately, Samuel causes us to want more, to look forward to the great high priest, Jesus, who would restore communion with God in ways that Samuel could not. He would offer himself. The sacrifice would be once for all. Jesus is a better high priest, one who never fails you, one who is a sure foundation who has taken your sin upon himself and offered you reconciliation to your God. In the system that Samuel restored, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. This is Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
thus securing an eternal redemption. Do you see the contrast between Eli and his wicked sons and the faithful priest in Samuel that ultimately causes us to look forward to Jesus Christ, who is our faithful high priest, that does not treat the offerings of the Lord with contempt, but rather offers his very own blood once for all for our redemption. He goes to the cross like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he opens not his mouth. He is smitten and afflicted on our behalf. But as he promised his disciples, he would rise again, and he did. He then ascends to the right hand of the Father, where he pours out his Holy Spirit to the church, on the church, who is the second helper. And as we conclude this morning, we want to recognize the the good news that we find even in the midst of the darkness that God shines in and through His grace by raising up Samuel. This good news is our only hope that we do not have to earn our righteousness before God, but that Samuel causes us to look forward to Jesus Christ who is our righteousness, who is our hope, Christ is in you, the hope of glory, Christ for you. As we saw ourselves in the sins of Eli's wicked sons, we did reflect on our, the ways in which we have rejected God and the ways that the Eli and his sons had, yet we now turn and we fix our eyes on the wonderful Savior who came to offer himself for us. We do not have to revel in those sins, but rather we can look away from ourselves. That is faith, leaning and trusting upon Christ for reconciliation to God who shed, Christ himself shed his very own blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The wicked priest rejected God, but the Christian, you and I, we lean into and we trust God's provision. They took for themselves Yet Jesus took to himself, and we now let rest and lean upon our faithful high priest, remembering this theme that in the midst of the darkness, God provided a faithful priest, but ultimately a great high priest in our, Jesus, in our Lord Jesus Christ to mediate between God and man, and in him communion with God is never broken. Because he is perfect in all his ways. The boy Samuel, a faithful priest, foreshadowed the great high priest we now have in Jesus Christ. And we now live in light of what Christ has accomplished. He has removed the clutches of sin and has given us his spirit to help in our weakness. Communion with God was interrupted by the wickedness of man. However, God provided the light was shining in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. It is now in and through our faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, that we approach the throne of grace in boldness. He has given us access. Praise our God who is abounding in mercy, full of grace and truth, who has given us a faithful high priest that we can now come to him and our communion with him and our fellowship with him will never be interrupted as we come in and through the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. Thankful, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, take your word and apply it to us. We ask, Lord, that your Spirit would be at work in us as we hear the word proclaimed, that our faith would be increased, that we would continue to lean and trust and rely upon Christ and his righteousness. We're thankful, Lord, that in the boy Samuel, we could see the foreshadowing of the great high priest that we have in Jesus Christ. And we ask that we together would lean upon Christ. We would trust in the sure foundation that we have, thanking you that his sacrifice is once for all. He completed his work and then he sat down at the right hand of God. And we together do come now in his name, trusting you, Lord. We're thankful for your word, asking that it would be applied to us. And we do pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.